Welcome to Art for Conversations, a podcast about arts and cultural management. I'm Anita Latham. And I'm Katrina Ingram. We interview leaders who help shape the world of arts and culture, sharing their stories, their insights and observations. This season has been brought to you with the support of McEwen University and the Rosé Foundation. Welcome to Art for Conversations. I'm your host, Anita Latham. We have Daniel Turner here with us today. Daniel is the Deputy Dean of the School of Business and the Creative Industries at the University of Western Scotland, UWS. His research interests focus upon social cultural exploration of events and sports and the use of such activities to generate income, social and cultural impacts. Daniel is going to be joined today by his co-author David McGillaray, who is also a professor of events and digital cultures at the University of Western Scotland, but unfortunately David has been called away. Daniel and David are the co-authors of Event Bidding, Politics, Persuasion and Resistance. Daniel, it's great to have you join us today. Uh, thank you for being part of Art for Conversations. Can you tell us about your scholarly career pathway? Yeah, of course. Um, well, actually, the day that we're recording this is my sixth work anniversary for, for UWS. Well done. Uh, six years today. Thank you. Um, I've been in, in academia full-time since uh, about 2007. Um, I spent a, a few years before working on my PhD. Uh, at the moment, as you say, I'm in the role of Deputy Dean of the School of Business and Creative Industries. Uh, but my my academic background has has always been in areas to do with sports and yep. events. Uh, so my, my doctorate, which I, I completed at Glasgow Caledonian University, over a very long period of time, um, looked at um, the the growth of essentially adventure recreation, publicly funded skate parks right. in Scotland, yep. um, using a a figurational sociology approach with the work of Norbert Elias in there. Um, so I've always had a, a real interest in the the interplay between public policy and you know my my undergraduate degree was in leisure management. So I guess what right. used to be called the leisure industries, sport, events, tourism. Uh, so having come through with my PhD very much in the sport terrain, uh, I started teaching at Glasgow Caledonian. 13 years ago full-time um, and there my role took me across sports and events uh, and increasingly my interest in public policy and the interaction between these areas really led me into the role that events primarily in my case sporting events were yeah. playing in developing cities developing nations growing their economies what contributions they were making always really trying to have a a bit of criticality about the claims that are advanced yeah, yeah. Um, when those types of things happened. So three years in that role led me up to Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen, yeah. um, which is where you and I met for the first time. Yeah, we did. Where I had the role of program leader uh, for what yeah. was at that time the new event management program up in Aberdeen, and so working with colleagues to, to build that program from from its first intake of students over a, a period of four years. Uh, and that's really where I started to become in- increasingly more and more focused on the role of events. Yeah. Um, obviously, at the time you and I got to know one another, you were involved with the Youth Festival in, in Aberdeen. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of my role there was about getting students to engage with these events and think again critically about 
how they might contribute to the, the visitor economy in a country which is a city, sorry, that was really starting to think about those questions, I guess, in some ways for the first time. Um, that's where event bidding started to come onto my, my horizon a little bit as well. At the time I was there, Aberdeen was bidding to be UK City of Culture. Yeah. So it's quite interesting to look at some of the information around that and how they were trying to do that. Uh, and then six years ago, the opportunity to, to move back into the west of Scotland, which is home for me, uh, came up. So I came back to, to the west of Scotland and started at UWS, again, primarily there uh, as a senior lecturer in event management teaching some of the same areas, some of the same issues. But in, in the last couple of years, uh, my career trajectory has kind of moved into the, the management and leadership side of, of working at a university, which isn't quite as um, much fun for doing research, but <laughs> it's, it's still an exceptionally challenging role. And a lot of my, my research interests are now starting to spin out into issues really to do with higher education and student yeah. engagement. Um, I spent yeah. some time overseas recently looking at how... Uh, universities in Sri Lanka deal with academic engagement, but still maintaining this this interest in uh, essentially events and sports. So whilst at UWS event bidding has been my, my main area of focus, but also actually uh, interestingly coming back to some of the things that interested me originally with my colleague Sandro Carnicelli, who's one of our, our senior lecturers here, uh, and parallel to working on the event bidding stream, Sandra and I developed some work around lifestyle sports and public policy. So almost going back yeah, full circle to where I was in the early 2000s. So yeah. that, that's been the last 13 years, I guess. Yeah. Coming back to what you mentioned before, you and I met when uh, we were both living in Aberdeen. And at the time, Aberdeen was bidding for um, the City of Culture, and which is a UK a massive kind of regeneration policy uh, and hope. When you mentioned before, kind of out of that became a little bit of interest around event bidding. How, you know, what was it that really sparked your interest? Because I know, you know, we both lived through that experience mm. and we were both part of those initial early meetings where they were thinking about the bid and how to do it. Um, you know, I went in one direction and you kind of have now taken that concept and you've written a book really. Um, you know, for for our listeners, what what would you describe as what is event bidding? Like what are you talking about when you're talking about that? Okay, so well, there's... Um... Essentially, there are a series of events, whether they're sporting or cultural, which would be best described as peripatetic. So they move from city to city, country to country. The most notable ex examples being the Olympics and right. the World Cup, um, for example. And it was actually the FIFA World Cup that I think first certainly caught my kind of interest in this. Uh, David, who, who can't be with us today, he and I worked together for a really long time. And we'd stayed in touch when I had moved to Aberdeen and he was in yeah. Glasgow. And it was round about the time that Qatar was bidding to host the 2022 World Cup. And actually, in, in preparing for today, I was kind of going back through my notes. And there was some emails between David and I just after I'd gone to Aberdeen in 2010 nice. yeah. saying, this is interesting. Someone should look at this. And we were kind of swapping a few messages back and forth about what that might look like and what might that be. And a big part of that conversation then subsequently became the event bidding book. About you know about five years later, yeah. But being in Aberdeen was really interesting for me because the, the City of Culture Award was was literally on your doorstep. Aberdeen's the, the third biggest city in Scotland, but it's a, a city of hundred thousand people, so it's still a very 
compact city it's a small place everyone knows everyone um and so there was an opportunity to really see firsthand what was happening and so event bidding essentially then relates to the process by which cities or countries or combination of the countries increasingly put forward a case to an awarding body who typically are the owners of the event that they should be allowed to, to host that event. And it's a process which is, in some cases, very lengthy. You yeah. know, it, it can be a number of years. Yeah. Um, it can be exceptionally costly. Uh, you know, I think in some cases, hundreds of thousands for small events, tens of millions yes. for, for large-scale events. And I, I think we kind of felt it was a process that often happens out with the public eye. Yeah. You know, often it's only when yeah. the, the host is announced that people really started to understand it so that, that's really what we mean by that process is everything that happens before the moment someone stands up on stage and says and the host is <laughs> um you know, so we, we were interested in i guess the the gestation of the event rather right. than the, the delivery of the event itself so what, um, because so, it's such a sorry so what do you no, think are some of the key factors that kind of play into when a city bids for an event you know like where do you think the spark comes from that someone goes oh why don't we try and run the olympics um (laughs) um i think there can be lots of things and i think one of the things you say is there are factors that come into play some that should and some that shouldn't but they come into play all the same i think you have to accept that for certain people for certain organizations these events are massive money makers the massive um opportunities for for certain people and certain types of business so you'll often have very prominent figures within a local region yeah. thinking well you know if we could bring this in it'll, it'll create investment in construction it'll um, produce investment in tourism it'll produce investment in hospitality it'll produce investment in, in all these different areas so you often have that as a heavy area in a lot of places and all over the world very much it's a, a linked to a city or a country's sense of place yeah, uh, and, and trying to position themselves in, within the world. So on a, a global scale, something like the Olympics, if you think about some of the countries that have hosted the Olympics in recent years, uh, China or, or Brazil, for example, that's very much been about making a statement about being a, a world player. Yeah. So there's yeah. a bit of statesmanship involved. Yeah. Um, for a lot of smaller events, and particularly smaller cities and smaller national events like the City of Culture, often local authorities, local politicians will see it as an opportunity to drive regeneration. Yeah. You know, I think if you look in the UK, uh, I appreciate some of these place names might not mean much to some of the, the people that might listen to this, but if you think of places like Hull, you think yeah. of places like Paisley. I've actually, we've just gone through the process a couple of years ago in Paisley of bidding to the UK City of Culture as well. Um, these are places which have perhaps seen a period of industrial decline and are now trying yeah. essentially a, a cultural-led regeneration approach to development. I think politicians like bidding contests because you know it's a fabulous image boost for to be the, the politician who brought the event to the country. In fact, our, our Prime Minister, whilst not involved in winning the bid, yeah. has made an awful lot of hay out of being the Mayor of London at the point when, when that event came to town. Yes. Uh, so I think you have that aspect of things. I think in some countries and in some populations, there's also a sense within the population of this is a thing we do. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, it's almost a, well, of course we bid for events. Of course we get involved in events. So there's a lot of disparate reasons there, some of which are, are, are very well-intentioned, some of which perhaps are slightly more self-serving, yeah. some of which are financial, some of which are political, some of which are, I guess, tangible, and some of which are, are intangible. Yeah. I think it, your point there around the tangible and intangible is really interesting because, you know, in the in the – research that I've been doing looking at the cities that don't actually win the bid that go through the whole process it's also about what they do after they've announced you know and the host is and their name's not the host they don't win Uh, there's this whole thing around all the journey they go on that you've been talking about and in some element some of what happens is a little bit around uh, this this topic of soft power, you know, and finding our name and our identity in that, and you know, soft power as a as opposed to military power. Um, mm. So, from your perspective, what, how would you say that concept of kind of soft power sits into the narrative of event bidding? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, and I think your point there about places which don't win is really interesting because, of course, some places will be bidding as part of a, a long-term strategy of yeah. growing the types of events. So they might hold one event because ultimately they want to hold a different event and it's about demonstrating capacity and capability yeah. and building their, their, their brand awareness essentially is a safe pair of hands. Glasgow, which is you know my home city essentially, yeah. has, has been very good at that over the last couple of decades. I think the notion of soft power is interesting because really what you, you see is events bring legitimacy yes right they, they bring a seat at the table so yeah. if you look for example you know for china really hosting the olympics was the culmination of, of their emergence as a global superpower yeah. and it was almost that that last moment of saying well here we are we now are actually economically dominant we're politically strong we, we are able to host the biggest and the largest but i think if you look at places for example like Qatar, yes um a very small but very rich country they have have really used events as a means of securing access to possibly a much bigger place on the global stage than they might otherwise have, whether that's in trade negotiations, whether that's in discussions with other countries. But now we know where Qatar is, we know who Qatar are. And then I think there's some really interesting literature, for example, uh, Australia holding the... uh, the Asian Cup a few years ago, about how that was used as a means for Australia to leverage investment from China Yeah. Um, as well. So it's, it is, it's very much that, that hidden level of power, that the opposite of the hard yeah. military power, economic power. It is a more cultural influence. It is a more political influence yeah. that suddenly you, you can't be ignored anymore. You, you are as I say, at the table, you, I think one of the descriptions that I heard of, of the Olympics, I think, in, in Rio, was that it was essentially a coming out party for Brazil. And again, right. at the time where yeah. Brazil was bidding to host the Olympics, it was one of the fastest growing economies in the world. It was the fifth largest economy in the world, I think, at that yeah. point. Uh, there's an interesting thing there, which is at the point they were bidding, not so much at the point they were delivering 10 years later, yeah. and how much that can change. Yeah, But I, I think that that soft power can't be underplayed. And actually, even, in, again, if I think about it, in Scotland, famously we held the Commonwealth Games in 2014, um, 
And it was no coincidence that, you know, the same year as we had the Commonwealth Games, we had a couple of very large national events in Scotland around right, yeah. notions of homecoming. There was an independence referendum shortly afterwards, which clearly was about Scotland standing on its feet as an independent nation saying we can yeah. host these large-scale events. So some of that can be soft power broadcast yeah. outward to the world. Yeah. Some of it can be soft power broadcast inward to the population to say this is who we are, this is what we do. And if you go really far back, there are stories of you know South Africa hosting the Rugby World Cup after apartheid right. yeah. as a nation there are lots of stories of both inward and outward facing soft power yeah it's interesting isn't it because it's certainly a narrative that is kind of rising to the top right now and you can see especially around cultural policy some narrative around soft power that is certainly getting more traction than it would have got even 10 years ago so you know, in relation to the event bidding, because you've been involved in that sector now and looking at event bidding for a long time, would you say, uh, apart from COVID, um, over the you know last several years, do you think there's been a shift in the purpose of why a city's bidding, or is it still the same, but they're just using modern trendy language? You know, um, I think there's been a shift in how we talk about event bidding okay uh, and i think partially that's because you know event management as as a field is still a relatively new field of academic study yeah. um but if i think you know working with david one david's a, a fabulous professor in this area and has a very strong track record of producing interesting pieces of research but david did a piece of work with um my colleagues uh, Gil McPherson and Malcolm Foley around yeah. event policy right. back in, I think that would have been about 2010, maybe 2012, which was really one of the first times that people were being really starting quite critical of the narrative around events. Yeah. And there's been, in that last maybe 10, 15 years, we've started to pay more attention to the role that events play in cultural led regeneration or urban regeneration, whatever you want to call that. Yeah. And so because of that, we're now becoming more critical in how we discuss it. Yeah. I think 20, 30 years ago, you could say we're going to host event X and it's going to make us millions. And there's been a whole set of authors and academics in the last 20 years who have said, yeah, but will you? Really? Yeah. <laughs> and then they started to ask questions about when you say we, who do you mean? Yeah. And then there have been questions about, well, is money the only thing we're interested in? Are we interested in social advancement? Are we interested in environmental sustainability? Yeah. Are we interested in you know any of these different issues? So I think that because there's now a greater understanding of some of the claims that have been advanced in the past, there's a maybe a greater scepticism towards it, a greater interrogation towards it. The language we've used to talk about event bidding has had to change. Yeah. The requirements yeah. on cities and countries that are trying to bid are more detailed or nuanced than they've ever been. Yeah. I think you also have to factor in, I think the big thing for me has been there's been a professionalization of bidding now. Yeah. You know, there are literally people who travel the world to lead bids and it's an exceptionally lucrative job. Yes. And so as they've professionalized so too, we now have much clearer criteria about what you're bidding on and why you're bidding and, and what you're required to do to achieve the, the successful uh, hosting of the event. So I think all of those things mean that we talk about it differently, we think about it differently, and event organisers or event bidders have to yeah. talk a different language. Yeah. 
Yeah, they certainly do. One of the things that I have found interesting in the exploring the city of culture narrative is the changing of cultural policies that cities are doing to match the bid process. And I, th- I think that's really interesting. And it kind of comes, you know, I want to cycle back to your book because your book is around um, the event bidding process and the politics of that and the persuasion and resistance. And you published it in 2017. And um, thank you for the book. Uh, on behalf of myself and other academics, uh, I've certainly used it in my event management class and it was fantastic. Uh, it was really, really good. So for you and David, you kind of mentioned earlier on that, you know, you'd started a little bit of a an email narrative around what's going on. Um, so how did you actually decide together that you were going to write a book on the email narrative? You know, I, I think it was a lot of different things. David and I have uh, known each other for a very long time. He's not here, so I'll embarrass him. David was my lecturer when I was an undergraduate student. Yeah. Um, he's much, much older than I am. Um, <laughs> but And then subsequently, my PhD supervisor, and we worked together for a number of years, and we both shared an interest in this area. Yeah. Uh, and I think, as, as most academics, I think, in, in this I was going to say in this industry, this part of the industry, but I think actually as most academics do, when they get together, what they tend to talk about is the subject. They they tend to be passionate about the thing, and that's why they teach it, and that's why they research it. So we really had been just as friends talking about, well, who's bidding and what are they saying and and why are they bidding? And at the time, I don't think the full scale of some of the concerns around Qatar's World Cup bid had really came out in the public domain right and so at that point you're starting to say well there's something suspicious here for the start but actually that the campaign that they were running the narratives they were writing around the bid were really interesting the way in which they were trying to, to gain traction and gain awareness of the bid so we talked about that a lot yeah as one conversation then during my time in Aberdeen with the City of Culture bid that was happening there, I started to scope out some information around um, what happened in the city. And I'd interviewed some people and pulled together a, a conference paper around that, which I'd, I'd taken to a few different places and, and presented. But really, my initial thoughts around how bidding worked. Yes. David, at the same time, having coming off the back of the work that he had done in event policy, was growing his interest in... I guess that criticality about should events yeah. work, should yeah. we be hosting these things, who do they serve, and 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 how is consent manufactured around the events? And um, by coincidence, we ended up both working together again. Uh, David had gone to the University of the West of Scotland, I think, in 2010. Yeah. And when I came back yeah. into the, the West of Scotland, we got together and said, "Well, you know, is it time to do something with this? We've been talking about it for a really long time. Yeah. We think there's something there." Um, we sketched out what's now become the uh, the structure of the book, particularly I think the first uh, maybe eight chapters of the book uh, yeah. around why do people bid, how do they bid, uh, and then some of the more critical questions about should they bid, and that that turned into a proposal for for Routledge, yeah. um, who came back yeah. and said that they felt it was something that was useful something that was potentially quite timely yeah um at that point so that would have been we'd have written that proposal around about 2014 right into 2015 so you're just coming off the back of 
the London Olympic Games, yeah. just coming off the back of the Glasgow Commonwealth Games. Um, there were some quite big bid processes taking place at that point of time. Uh, and so Routledge came back and said, yeah, we, we think there's something in this as well. I think they possibly saw uh, particularly David's track record of publication as, yeah. as being very interesting. Um, and so that kind of led us to, well, yeah, let's let's try and put the book in into the world. And then uh, two years of writing and reading and writing yeah. and, uh, and reading eventually got it out there in, in what, 2017, 2018. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was fabulous to see it come together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it did have quite a long gestation period. And what's co-writing um, with an old friend like? Uh, it's a lot of fun, um, to be honest with you. Um, the first thing I think that we should highlight is that we did most of the writing at David's kitchen table. Uh-huh. Uh, and so the best part really was David's wife, Claire, who's, who's a lovely lady, bringing us bowls of soup and sandwiches. So I was in heaven for a large part of the process. <laughs> and probably that's why it took us so long to finally publish. It's really good. Uh, I think David is a, a fantastic academic. He's got an incredibly yeah. critical mind. And, yeah. you know, it's a... a this and Mike is my first book writing experience. Um, yeah. So uh, learning a huge amount. David, if he were here, I'm sure would say wonderfully kind things, but me and probably highlight that I need to learn when to use a comma um, <laughs> uh, once in a while. But it was it was a, a really positive experience. Um, uh, the only problem with that is, again, coming back to that, when you have two colleagues who are passionate about a subject, uh, I seem to recall days with Mike. I've spent the first two hours arguing about. So, are we talking about sporting mega events or mega sporting events? And yeah. that then becoming an issue for the rest of the day is to, well, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. Um, but an exceptional learning experience for me. I, I hope if he were here, he would say it was as enjoyable for him. Um, we have written together since. So, I guess that's. Oh, well, there you go. You're thing. obviously on the right track. So, what's the response to the book been like? Uh, it's been good. We've um, had a couple of very nice reviews in, in, in academic literature, which which is always lovely to see. Yeah. Um, we've had some really quite nice feedback where it's been used with students that they've found it to be interesting. They found it to be in, an accessible book on yeah. a challenging topic, which yeah. I think is, you know, I know from my, whenever I write anything, I, I think you're writing it so it can be used. Um, you've said very kind things, as you've already said today. So yeah. in that sense, it's, it's been very positive. Uh, it seems to have made its way onto a few good reading lists, which is nice. That's good. Um, I think we've had some nice comments from colleagues in industry who have been interested in the area as well, who have said nice things about it. Um, so it's it's been positive. Um, Interesting. And, and, very rewarding in that sense. Yeah. I think one of the things for me that added incredible value to my class um, was the event bidding process gets students to focus on what happens prior to an event, even getting money, uh, even those things, whereas often in event management, and I've been teaching that, you know, kind of in the event management arena for, for eight or so years is that um, and been working in the field for a very long time, is that people usually look at the event and then do the post-the-event narrative. And like you said, there's a lot out there that's written by some fantastic academics around the the effect of the event on community or economy or all of those things post-event. But what's fantastic about this book, from my perspective as a teacher, is 
getting the students to focus on that stuff that, like you said earlier, can start seven, five, seven, eight, nine years before an event even occurs. And yeah. it's a great way to get emerging uh, arts managers and emerging events managers to think with much more depth around this topic of what actually, if you're going to say, oh, well, let's host a city of culture, actually there's years and years of process here before you even get to put someone on the stage and make a beautiful speech. One of the things that's really interested me, uh, about 2007, I think it would have been, um, David and I attended an event in Liverpool. Liverpool was just gearing up to be... Um, European City of Culture in 2008. Right, yes. And there was, I, can't, I can't remember what the conference was or what the event was that led us to be in Liverpool, but there was a, a keynote presentation from a guy called Bob Scott, um, who basically is a, a peripatetic bid director. Yeah. Um, he moves, at that time, was moving from place to place and he would lead the bid. And I remember distinctly, it was one of the things that was in my mind. And I think we quote Bob Scott very early, in the, almost, I think, in the first couple of pages of the yeah. book, was he talked about the fact that his job ends the minute someone says, yes, you can host, and he leaves. Right. Um, and then someone else comes in and actually does the delivery. And as a result of that, he was kind of a, an invisible figure. People yeah. didn't really know that these guys existed. And that, for, for Dave and I, was fascinating for a lot of different reasons. I mean, the first is the cost to the public purse of bidding for these events. I mean, there were figures being thrown around when we were up in Aberdeen in high six figures. Yeah. I think if you go back almost 20 years, England spent somewhere in the region of, I think, 22, 26 million pounds bidding for a World Cup. Wow. For the last Olympic bid round, the one which ended up, with the dual coronation of Los Angeles and Paris. Yeah. If you added up the budgets for every city that bid for either of those games at some point, it surpassed a billion dollars for the first time. It's a now, lot of money. What's really interesting about that is most of that money is probably coming out of the public purse. Yeah. All of it's spent with no guarantee of success and very, very little of it's spent with the public knowing that's where their money's going and yeah. that's what's happening. But also, if you are successful in, in winning the right to host the games, in the bid stage, particularly, again, for those really big events, you are committing yourself legally and financially yeah. to some yeah. massive, massive investments, Some, in some cases, potential financial loss, in some mm-hmm. cases, you know, to, to building venues and facilities that are going to last a lifetime, um, you, you hope. And again, very little scrutiny, very little interest, very little attention being paid to, and how did that case get made? And in some sense, I mean, if you look at Vancouver Olympics, for example, going back to 2010, some of the the implications that had for host communities, I think if you look at some of the potential implications, there's really interesting stuff coming out of America where they've had peripatetic events and some of the impact that's had on things like civil liberties yes. in, in those cities. Um, and none of this really ever surfaces until someone opens the envelope and says, and the host is. Um, yeah. So that, that for us was really interesting to look at that that hidden aspect and, yeah. and all the things that it meant. And I think you, you made a point earlier about how places then become focused. There's, uh, Martin Mueller's work is, is in incredibly interesting in this area where he talks about essentially everything becomes focused in on the event 
sometimes to the detriment of things that might otherwise be happening. Um, so uh, I think that's something to it can set the agenda for a city or for a country yeah. for 10, 15 years with with little oversight and little critique. Yeah, yeah. I want to pick up on something you mentioned a little bit earlier uh, about the the information not getting out there because I think that also leads into what role the media plays in all of this process. You know, um, from your perspective and this, the research that you and David have done, you know, where would you say the media sits in this bidding process? You know, is it positive? Is it negative? Do they focus at the the end or the beginning? What, what's kind of, what have you guys found in that narrative? Well, I, I think, I mean, yeah. Yes and no to everything almost simultaneously. There. <laughs> the media should have a role, as it should in any aspect of public life, yeah. of holding power to account, of critiquing, of challenging, of looking for, for accountability. Yeah. And I think some of the more recent what David and I have, have done with John Lowerman has, has looked at the role particularly new media plays in that. Yeah. I think if you look at some places in the past... And we, we talk about in the book the fact that it's a deliberate attempt often on the part of bid committees to bring the media into the tent. Yeah. Who perhaps too often, or in some cases at the very least, the media can end up assuming the role of cheerleader right. for the bid. Yeah. But and that makes sense. There's a you know, a, a diet of nice, easy, friendly, publishable stories. You can yeah. wrap yourself up in a patriotic fervor um, and support it. And often, I think bid committees actively search for that because right, yeah. you know there's a an analogy about better having people inside the tent than than out, yes. um, which comes to mind. So I think the media has a role to play in being critical and, and holding bid committees to account and asking questions about who is spending money and where are they spending money and yeah. why are they spending money. Yeah. Often, I think historically, they've been sucked into to being cheerleaders for yeah. it rather than having that criticality um, but that's where I think more recently we've been talking about the role of new media and new media and citizen media and whatever you want to call that yeah challenging and, and holding to account and there have been some really good examples then subsequently of where what would be the, I guess if, if we're talking new media you have to talk old media or traditional media yeah. have then come in and said well actually is that is that claim valid? Is that claim accurate? Um, so the media has a a massive, all-encompassing role to play. It's just whether or not it always plays it effectively. Yeah. So in the field of further research, um, you know, we've just talked about what you have been looking into in a in a recent project that you and David wrote together. Um, you made a case for more participatory, involved and collaborative research methods uh, as a way of better understanding this really, what is a dynamic and a complex dynamic that is taking place in the event bidding process. So for you, what would that look like? What would that kind of research look like in the field as moving forward? Well, I think that, that more recent piece of research that you're, you're referring to is a piece of work David and I did with John Lowerman. Yeah. Uh, John's uh, an academic based in New York. Um, one of the fabulous things about contemporary academic life is we've never been in the same room as John. <laughs> we really liked 
we really liked John's work, which had looked a lot at some of the protest movements that had started to emerge, right, yeah. particularly around Boston's um, failed Olympic bid a few years ago. And we reached out to John and said, look, we, we like your work. Hopefully you like our work as well. Do you think we can collaborate on something? And so this this paper came forward around the idea of new media activism. Yeah. One of the things we've seen in the last, again, 10, 15 years, and as a, a former colleague of ours, a former student of David's, um, Jennifer Jones, actually, did, I think you know Jen, uh, yeah. did her PhD around citizen media, around the Vancouver Olympics, and protest media. Um, and that's something that's that's really emerged in the last 10, 15 years with growth of social media has been ordinary citizens forming protest movements yeah. and campaigning against. And in some cases, that historically, that's often came after the announcement of the host and in the build-up to the delivery of the event. Yeah. What we had spotted was, uh, in the most recent piece, what we did was increasingly the protest movements are now targeting the bid stage. Yeah. That's where John's work in Boston right. is incredibly useful. And so we, we kind of tried to, to sit down as a, a trio and, and identify, well, what role is new media playing in this activism? Yeah. And I think where we got to at the end of that work was we were able to see that new media was playing a very strong role in shining a light on things. But actually, where it was at its most effective is where some of that new media protest aligned with traditional models of political activism. Right, okay. In, yeah. in almost the physical domain, we are participatory democracy of going yeah. along to protest physically going into committee meetings and asking difficult questions. Uh, and I think really what we were talking about was if those types of movements want to, to be effective, they have to recognise that there's an alignment between the digital world and the physical world. Yeah. But also where they've been particularly effective was where new media enabled old media. Some might say enabled, some might say forced or held to account to assume the more critical stance. Yeah. So literally feeding them the stories and pointing them in the direction of this is a question you should be asking. This is an area that's interesting. And so that's really what we mean by participating involvement, which is trying to join the dots and say, yeah. well, if, if we really are going to have an effective critique and a holding to account of the, the types of bid boosters, if you want to use that language, yeah. then it has to be in alignment of new media and old media digital protest and physical protest. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's really what we, we saw as that participatory involvement that you mentioned. That's fantastic. So with that um, rich content of future research, what are your plans for the next five years? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's an interesting question. We, we, we've obviously just, uh, w- within the event bidding frame, we, we've just finished two or three things. Um, so the, the book itself and then a couple of things with, with John separately. Yeah. Um, in this area, I, I don't want to speak for David because he's not here, um, but I know David is increasingly through our centre that we have at UWS interested in a range of different issues around mega events so yeah. he's he's supervising students with interests around human rights he's looking at some of the uses of public space by private events which yes. are really interesting yeah. i'm really interested in something you mentioned at the start which is failed bits yeah um I, i'm fascinated by having lived in two cities which have been unsuccessful in bids um in, in the last 10 years i don't know if that means i'm a the jinx and perhaps yeah. should not be invited to cities that are bidding. <laughs> um, but 
I'm really interested in what happens after a bid fails. Yeah. Um, you know, Aberdeen has bid twice now and never got close. Yeah. Are they going to bid again? And if they have bid again, what have they learned from the last time? If you're unsuccessful in bidding for one event, what happens when you go for a different event? Yeah. I, I think that's an area that's, that's really interesting. I think there's a lot of things that are really interesting around starting to interrogate rights holders of events. Yeah. Like one, it's something we've yeah. not really talked about yet, but I'm fascinated by the power that, again, particularly in the sporting terrain primarily, the big event right holders like FIFA and the IOC, the power they have with very little accountability. These are, are organisations that have economies essentially bigger than many countries. Yeah. And they're able to enact massive influence on how countries behave yeah um you know insisting on changes to legislation insisting on changes to practice i'd like to, to really look at some of those issues as well um and start to, to interrogate that whether or not uh, my own personal career path lets me do that as much as i'd like i don't know <laughs> um but i think that would be an area that would be really interesting yeah. to, to consider yeah is you know what, what happens after the circus is left. Yes, yeah. There's always it's always or if the circus never comes to town. Yeah, um, yeah. So it sounds like a sabbatical year and a book, uh, another book in the pipeline. Hey, Daniel, I really want to thank you for your time with us today. Is there any pearl of wisdom that you would pass on in relation to <laughs> <laughs> your the the knowledge of? Um, you know that you got that you both learned in really investigating the bidding process. Um, oh, that's a big question. Definitely, write with a co-author who provides you with regular sustenance whilst you're yeah. writing. That's that's a big one. Uh, do you know? I, I think it's about the thing that I found really fascinating and really personally fulfilling from this, and hopefully, if people have engaged with the work, they they find it useful is look for the thing that's not being looked at. Yeah. You know, I think when, with these types of events, these types of, what's the question that's not being asked? What's the, the area that we're not shining a light on? Yeah. Because I think for me, that was the thing that was, that was the thing that made it interesting to do. Yeah. Was to say, well, hang on a second. You know, whenever someone tells you you can't look at something, you want to go, go look behind the scenes um, and find out what's actually happening. So I think that would be the, that would be the thing. What's the question no one wants you to ask? Yep. And why don't you want you to ask that question? And then that's that's the interesting stuff um, uh, for me. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us in Artful Conversations today. Please um, pass on our disappointment but also understanding of why David couldn't be with us and we would have loved to have heard from him. But we'll do that another time. But it's been great chatting with you and thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been really enjoyable and hopefully I'll speak to you again soon. Katrina Daniel is always an incredibly interesting person to spend time with and interview um, and I thoroughly enjoy spending time with Dan and this was an amazing interview. I think one of the things that is really exciting about what Daniel talks about is that he 
he knows the topic. He's in there all the time. You know, the the whole conversation around bidding and why we bid and how we bid and what's the purpose of bidding and if we lose a bid, what does that mean? And it it, it just fascinates me. And you know, the, all the strategy around bidding and you know, one of the things that always amazes me when when Dan and I talk is when he talks about these people who actually their job is developing bids for these great big huge events and I I've never thought of that as a job it always amazes me that was a total eye-opener for me as well um, because I always think about what happens after you get the bid not necessarily all the work that goes into getting the bid and so I was really intrigued to hear about that and I was intrigued by Daniel himself um, as someone who went to business school when I think of people who run business schools I think of this typical call type person. Um, to, to hear about Daniel's background, though, in arts and sports, um, the sort of non-traditional business background, I just love that. I love the contrast of that. It was just really, really refreshing. Yeah, and really exciting. And I think one of the things that I really like about that is the way that arts and festival and major event management is acknowledged as business, as big business. And, you know, and we all complement each other. We're not, we're not standalones and we all work together really well. And I, I really, really like that. And one of the things that I think has really helped sharpen my thinking around management is the way Daniel talks about bidding is sometimes strategic. It's not, you don't necessarily need to win the bid. Sometimes it's about applying and getting some marketing off the bid um, that is important. So that strategy around bidding for something I think is fascinating. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I recall during the interview, Annetta, you raised this point about soft power and how hosting these events can really kind of legitimize a country or give it a sense of itself. Um, and Daniel talked about uh, the, the story of Scotland and the 2014 Commonwealth Games and how yeah. the independence referendum followed. And, and it really just kind of defined a people. And that really, um, you know, that political kind of soft power really resonated with me. I thought that was a really interesting way to think about this uh, issue that goes beyond the economics. This show was created by executive producer and host Annetta Latham, co-host Katrina Ingram and technical producer Paul Johnson. Research assistants involved were Caitlin McKinnon and McEwen Bachelor of Music students. Theme music by Emily Darfour and cover by Constanza Patcher. Special thanks to the Rosé Foundation for their support and to our guests. Artful Conversations is a production of McEwen University. All rights reserved.